So I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of conflict with someone that I really care about, family or, or close friend, or when I've specifically in the midst of conflict, when I've done the wrong, when I'm clearly the one in the wrong, when I'm in the midst of that kind of situation, a lot of times I'm, I'm virtually useless in every other area of my life uh, because I, I mull over it constantly. I don't know if you can identify with that or not, uh, especially in, in my role. Um, it, it has happened. I'll, I'll be honest. I want to be hypocritical in front of you. Um, I don't want to be hypocritical in front of you, but I'm about to admit being hypocritical in front of you. So that's how little of a hypocrite I'm trying to be. Um, if I'm being honest, there have been times, not today, but there have been times on Sunday morning when I have done my role, done my best to be the medium through which God shares his word to all of you in the midst of some sort of interpersonal conflict uh, with someone that I care about. And, and specifically in, in those situations, and I'm not talking about like, you know, split up family conflict. I'm talking about even the smallest of arguments. Even in those, in that situation, I feel useless to come and actually try to tell you how to deal with conflict, to, to try to speak God's word to all of you. And, 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 and it's hard for me to focus on what God has called me to do in the midst of that sort of conflict. I'm pretty much useless until I make it right. I was that way when I was a child. I hated getting, you know, corporal punishment from my parents, but I hated even more disappointing them. I hated that, that feeling of knowing that I had let them down. I think I've told you before, I had this one teacher in high school that could just look at you and you knew that you had disappointed her. You know, she was my favorite teacher and I, 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 I've always been a people pleaser. And so I wanted to, you know, make sure she was happy with me. And that feeling of, of disappointment that would ruin me for the rest of the day. The same with football coaches and other people in my life when I was a child. And again, it's that same way today, maybe not to that extent, but still when there are arguments, when there are conflict, when there are issues with people, it, it, it gets in my head, and I'm sure some of you at least can identify to the point that I can't ever get it away from me, that it's, it's always before me. It's always at least in the back of my head and whatever I'm trying to do, and it affects the way I deal with other people, affects the way that I try to do my job and other things that I believe that God has called me to do. It's exceptionally difficult when that person that I realize that I've wronged, which is this way in every case, but when I realize it most clearly that the person that I've wronged is God himself, that problem is made all the more oppressive. Have you ever wronged someone so deeply that you couldn't even bring yourself to make eye contact with them? Maybe it's someone in, that you live with. Maybe it's a spouse, and there was that moment where you couldn't even look at each other. You couldn't even talk to each other. Maybe another family member, maybe someone in, in church or school or at work that you just began to avoid and then find yourself avoiding them for six months, a year, so on and so forth. Just like how a wrong never dealt with in, in any kind of romantic or familial relationship, our own unrepentant heart, our own unrepentant sin can affect all of our day-to-day -day relationships with God. Because I believe some of us act that way with God sometimes, that we feel like we've wronged him. We feel like we've messed up. We feel like we're not doing what he's called us to do. And instead of approaching him, instead of trying to bear our soul to him, repent and make things right, our natural inclination as human beings is, is to run from that. I say natural because the very first people that sinned, what did they do? They ran and they hid from God. Adam and Eve hid in the garden when they realized the depth of their sin, or began to realize the depth of their sin, I should say. 
And we often do the same thing. We remove ourselves from God. We don't make eye contact. We don't want to talk to him. We don't want to go through it. And if we do want to talk to him, we want to do it in these nice superficial ways and not deal with the true nature of what's going on in our hearts. Of all the things in this world that separate us from God, our own sinful heart is the most destructive. We always think about things outside of us, things that are coming against us. But the most destructive thing, look at it, throughout the history of the world, is the human heart. In Genesis 6, before God comes and destroys the world with a flood, he says this about mankind. He says that every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. Now, I think that's the NIV. It might read different in other translations. But listen to all the the different qualifiers. Every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. In my ESP, it says continually. That's all they thought about humanity, which is why God came and did what he did. And you would think that that would get better after the flood. But at the end of chapter 8 in the book of Genesis, when God makes his covenant never to do that again, he says, I'm never going to do that again. Because I know that man's heart is inclined to evil from his youth. And so it doesn't change. There is something about the human heart that has fallen. And there's several other scriptures that I could quote to you. Several that you know by heart about the inclination of man's heart. And how man's heart from man's heart comes all sorts of evil. And it's not as if God rejects us in these moments. But rather that we have walked away from him. And his presence feels less for that reason. And so this morning, we're going to start a series that I'm calling Everyday Love. Have you ever been around one of those couples that have been married for 50 plus years and still can't stop talking about one another, keep their hands off each other, or, or not say something good about the other person when they're around each other? You might wonder, how do they do it? How do they maintain that day to day through so many decades, through so many years, undoubtedly through so many issues and conflicts? How do they maintain that kind of relationship? And maybe you've seen people walk with God in that same way. How do we maintain a day to day, passionately intimate relationship with Jesus in our regular life? Because we can think about him in the high moments. We can think about him in the low moments when we desperately need him, when we're ecstatic over something that he's done for us. But the day-to-day, everyday love, how do we maintain passion in that walk? And as we start thinking through this idea, the first thing that I want to talk about is the idea of turning back, of repenting, returning to God if we've walked away. So, This morning, the encouragement to you is going to be repent from your sin and return to the God of salvation. You see, no one enjoys asking for forgiveness. Anybody enjoy saying, I'm sorry, asking for forgiveness? I don't. Um, Often, fights between people persist. And if you've been married or in any human relationship, you know this. Fights with people persist because neither one wants to come to that humble conclusion and say, I'm sorry, and own their mistake. And so fights just continue instead of one person apologizing because they're waiting on the other person to apologize. And as a result, those relationships, those those conflicts remain undealt with, and, and the relationship remains broken. So let's not be that way with each other, obviously, but let's certainly not have that be a characteristic of our relationship with God. You see, our God is a God who seeks out the sinner, who comes for us. Psalm 139, wherever we go, he's going to be pursuing us. But he's also not a God who would force himself on anyone, not force us to have a relationship with him, but waits for us to respond. And if we do not respond, that relationship will not be there. 
If we choose our sin over his presence, he's going to respect that choice and leave us to our own devices. If, however, we repent from our sin and we return to him, he will be, as scripture tells us, faithful and just to forgive us. He will make that situation right and restore the the wronged relationship if we repent. But what does that mean to repent? Perhaps the greatest example in scripture is the psalm we're going to read this morning, Psalm 51. It is traditionally attributed to David's hand in response to his sin with Bathsheba. So obviously he was in a position where he knew he had messed up greatly after he had been approached by Nathan and had that whole conversation and comes to the conclusion that he is the sinner and he writes this psalm. It shows us what it really looks like for someone to be repentant. For someone to be broken over their sin before God and desire that new heart, that cleansing from that sin, and a brand new vibrant relationship with God. The testimony of Psalm in David 51 tells us to repent and return. Psalm 51. Again, we're going to read all 19 verses, uh, but we're going to kind of divide it up a little bit. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 6, Psalm chapter 51. David pens these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David seems to understand the depth of his sin. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Again, something that you've done wrong and you can't get away from. David can't hide from this sin. Those of you who are familiar with the old short story from Edgar Allan Poe, A Tell Tale Heart, you know that even after he killed the man, he could not get away from the sound of the heart thumping and reminding him of what he had done. Our sin often pursues us in that way, and David as well. He cannot get away from that sin. It is ever before him. He realizes the depth of it. He admits to performing acts that he himself calls evil. He recognizes that his own actions have tarnished himself and his relationship with God. And he also recognizes that it's not one single act of indiscretion. It's not one single sin, but rather that he is in generally a sinful creature. He has been born into sin. In sin, his mother conceived me. He was, he was born from, sin, from his mother's womb. That's what that's saying, that we are all sinners from the very beginning. Not because we've inherited it from our parents, but we've inherited as human beings. It is a part of something within us that responds to God to go the other direction instead of towards him. He recognizes this about himself. Again, in all the world, we will never encounter anything uglier than our own, civil, than our own sinful hearts. Let me qualify that a little bit because it might seem a little strong because you might think as you look around in the world that you've seen uglier things than what you see in your own heart. But guess where all of those ugly things came from? From the sinful heart of humankind. From a heart that is opposed to God. And you've been alone with you. I haven't. You've been alone with you. You know what you think. You know how you inwardly judge people. 
You know how you justify your own sin while you look down upon the sin of others. You know how you, you constantly try to defend yourself. I, 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 maybe I'm the only one that's ever done this, where you've had conversations or arguments with people who aren't even there and trying to justify yourself and show yourself how you're right and everybody else is wrong. This is what we do in our human heart. We justify our addictions. We justify our sin while we judge people who sin differently than we do. We will never encounter anything uglier than that. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've thought evil thoughts, angry thoughts towards your brother, you've basically committed murder. That if you've harbored lustful thoughts toward another person, you've basically committed adultery, wherein the heart is where it mattered, it is where sin resides. And it's also where God comes to clean. David understands the depth of his sin. He also, and more importantly, understands the character of his God. He understands that God is righteous, that God is just and blameless. Listen to the words that he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now David had obviously sinned against other people. If he's talking about the sin with Bathsheba, as we believe that he is, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against the people of Israel, he had sinned against Uriah, who, whose wife that he slept with and then made sure that he got sent in a battle in the front lines in order to be killed so that he could come in and take his place. Because he realized that because Bathsheba was now with child, that sin was going to come out. Uh, you could even say that even his preceding generations, because the curse, uh, the succeeding generations, because the curse fell upon them, that David had even wronged them, even though they didn't exist yet. David had wronged several other people, and he's not saying that he didn't do anything wrong or that he doesn't need to apologize to any of those people. No, that's, he's making a point by saying something big and kind of out there. When he says that against you, you only have I sinned because all sin is an offense to God, ultimately. God is the only one who is righteous, who is pure, who is blameless. God is the only one who is undeserving of punishment or judgment. And so when David sins, he realizes that it's God who gave him life. Anything that he does, he does against that God. All sin is an offense to God before it is an offense to anyone else. And realizes that God delights in the truth, that God wants to make things right, that God wants to live in that relationship where there's honesty and authenticity and they can walk together. He trusts that God is merciful and quick to forgive. His love is steadfast and his mercy is abundant, as David says. He knows the depth of his sinfulness. He knows what he has done wrong is terrible against God and against those around him. And he also knows that God is loving, that God's mercy is abundant. And so he has those two things in mind, and they seem like polar opposites. I am terribly evil because of what I do. He calls his actions evil. I have done evil things, yet God is merciful and just and righteous and quick to forgive. And as he begins, as he continues in Psalm 51, we see his trust in God's ability to forgive. And now we're going to read verses 7 through 12. David continues, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
is a key thing about repentance, about forgiveness. David isn't just saying he's sorry. He is asking for God to recreate him, to make him something new. In verse 7, where he says, purge me with hyssop. First of all, hyssop was the, uh, the plant that was used on the day, on the night of Passover, to spread the blood of the lamb over the frame of the door to protect them as the angel of death passed by. Tells us something about God offering protection to David. But that idea of purge me with hyssop, that word in the Hebrew, there's no like real easy way to translate it in English. Because if you were to translate it in English, the most literal translation would be unsend me with hyssop. Take sin away from me. In other words, I'm a sinner. God, undo that with your blood. Undo that with with your sacrifice. Unsend me is what David is asking for God to do. Like this thing that I have done to myself that defines me, God, can you get rid of that completely? Not like, God, can, can you forgive me? And, and, and then, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do okay for a while. And then, and then we'll do this again. And, and it'll be this back and forth kind of thing. And we're always needing to ask forgiveness. I understand that. But, God, but David is asking for a singular moment. God, completely change me. And reorient my entire heart towards you instead of towards sin. Unsend me. Change me from the inside out. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I love that image. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. If, maybe if you've ever broken an ankle or twisted an ankle or, or uh, messed up a knee or something in football or, or any kind of other sport, um, you weren't dancing and jumping, were you? No, I, I, I strained an MCL in my left knee. I didn't uh, tore it a little bit, but not like I wasn't out the rest of a season of football. I was just out for a few weeks, and I wasn't jumping, right? Uh, and that was just a little strain. I, was, I was on, had a straight cast and, and even crutches for a couple of days to make sure that I didn't put weight on it. What David is talking about is someone who's absolutely broken. If you've ever seen someone like physically broken where they, they can't move, maybe, that, maybe it is a, an accident or maybe it's the effects of, of, of a disease or old age, to think of that person, and we do this when we, when we commemorate and, and memorialize someone who has passed, like that, that frail body rising up out of the grave and, and, and jumping and, and, and singing for joy. It's something that God does for us. But he doesn't just do it then. He does it spiritually for us all the time. Maybe you can understand what it's like to be broken. Where you feel like spiritually, I just can't get up today. I, I just can't move forward with this. I feel like my bones have been crushed And God comes, as David tells us, and he repairs those bones. Maybe you've heard before, and and, and I could be wrong, a doctor maybe in the room can can fix me, uh, tell me I'm wrong, but I've heard before that if you break a bone, once it heals, it's stronger in that particular spot than it was when it was broken. God comes in and heals our brokenness and builds strength there that we've never had before. And even my broken bones, David says, rejoice. What was dead, what was broken, is all of a sudden that which gives life. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. See, God doesn't just forgive, he makes new. The David who will exist on the other side of this repentance and forgiveness is a new man. He's not the same man who did what he did with Bathsheba. 
You are not who you were. You are who God is making you to be. And we cry out with David, restore to me, O God, the joy of your salvation. You know, I've often read through this scripture so quickly that I miss part of it. And then I quote it back to myself. I misquote it, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's not what David says. He says to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Salvation belongs to God and he offers it to us. When we misinterpret this passage and we think of restore to me the joy of my salvation, we can get into this American mindset that we often get in, that salvation is wholly described in that one single moment where you decide to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is when salvation begins for the Christian. But it is part of our everyday love, our everyday relationship with God is being saved. We are in a saving relationship with God. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved in the coming glory that is waiting upon us at the end of this age and in the next. It is something that is continually happening to us, something that God continually offers to us. You're experiencing the joy of God's salvation, that abiding peace and wholeness that comes from an ever-present relationship, ever-present spirit of God. I'm not talking about that high you had, the goosebump high that you had, that moment that you decided to give your life to God. I hope that you experience that more, more often. I hope that you experience that as, as much as you would like to, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the day-to-day abiding of Jesus Christ in your heart where you know that he is present, where you know that he is leading you down a certain path, where you know that even in the midst of chaos, he's got this and he's going to provide for you in the midst of any situation, where you know that you have a role and a duty and that he is using you to allow part of his plan to made manifest, be made manifest in this world. I'm talking about that spirit, that present spirit of God. Are you experiencing the joy of your salvation? And you might think, the joy, see, I just did it. The joy of God's salvation. I always want to make it mine. It belongs to God. Are you experiencing the joy of God's salvation? And you might wonder, if you were just reading through this passage, what does the joy of salvation have to do with the kind of repentance that David is talking about? He seems to be so low and so hard on himself. And then all of a sudden he says, return to me the joy of God's salvation, of your salvation. The joy of salvation is always preceded by grief over our sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. We run from grief in 2018 United States of America. The Western mindset, our culture, we run from grief. We run from repentance. We run from any feeling of guilt. But you know what that feeling, you know what grief over his sin did for David when he realized how desperately broken he was every moment that he realized how deeply low he was in his own flesh it made him see how amazing the grace of God is when I reflect over my own sinful heart over the thoughts that nobody else knows about over the judgment of my mind that I make in snap seconds that I wish mind why do you think that that I I cry aloud with Paul in Romans 7, the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the thing that I do want to do, I can't make myself do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of darkness? When I feel that way, when I realize the depth of my sin, I look to God and I say, as psalmists in other places in the book of Psalms said, God, who am I that you are mindful of me? 
I look at the stars and the work of your hands and I see what you've done. I look at my beautiful children and the wife that you've given me and I know my heart, how in the world could you do this for me? When I realize the depth of my sin, I see the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And I don't grovel in my sin. No, I rejoice in the love of God that is bigger than that sin. You see, we're not only do we run from guilt, we're so inwardly focused in our culture that our in our culture that our focus stays on self. Oh, I'm a terrible person. Oh, wretched man that I am. No, that's not how the biblical authors did it. Paul said, "Oh, wretched man that I am." But his next thought was, "There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ." Amen. His next thought was towards God. It didn't stay right here. He realized his lowness, but it moved him to see God's highness. That is what repentance does. The joy of God's salvation. It belongs to him. His focus is on him, and we go to him to get that restored back to us. And this recreated person is ready to respond to what God has for him or her. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For I will not delight in sacrifice, or I would, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in your sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered to the altar. Recreated person is ready to be obedient. The person who has repented and been forgiven is ready to be obedient. David says, do this and I will teach transgressors your, way, your ways. The follower of God is ready to get back to God's mission, building the walls of Jerusalem in verse 18. The follower of God is ready to get back to his duties before God that God has called him through the burnt offerings and sacrifices in verse 19. It almost seems like David is saying two different things. At first he says God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants a broken and contrite heart. But then in verse 19 he talks about going back and doing the sacrifices. Doing the sacrifices is the, what we, it's, it's, it's our physical response to God. But what should be behind that, David is saying, is a broken and contrite heart. Put that in 2018. We can go through the motions of religious duties, of coming to church, of being in a Sunday school class, perhaps of even reading the Bible ourselves. We can do all of that without ever allowing God to truly get inside of us and break us over our sin and be contrite over what we have done. This recreated person is ready to worship. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise, David says. Offering that kind of sacrifice to God goes along with a broken and contrite heart. Again, godly grief over our sin always produces worship. When I see the depth of my sin, I'm moved to worship this God. How do I know he really loves me? Because of all the ways that he's forgiven me. The same reason I knew my parents loved me when I was a kid. No matter how many times I messed up, no matter what they heard from school or from friends, they still loved me. Amen? Those of you who had moms and dads like that, I know not everybody has that, that blessing, but to have someone that loves you unconditionally, to know that always, 
know that God loves me because he still comes to me to spot everything he knows about me. And as Jesus says in Luke 7, talking about a sinful woman, the one who has been forgiven much, loves much, loves deeply. Sin is ugly. Nothing's uglier than my sin. And it should be the same for you with yours. David knew that as he reflected over specific sinful acts that he had done against people, and more importantly, God. And reflecting over that sin, he was undoubtedly caused to recognize his general sinfulness, the sinfulness of human flesh. You see, each of us is no better or no worse than David. We too have sinned in incredible ways against people and ultimately against God. We too exist in human flesh, fallen human flesh, that as David said about his sin, is always before us. Yet, we take heart. We take heart because we, just like David, follow a God and serve a God who abounds in mercy and shows us his steadfast love at all times. We mourn our sinfulness. We mourn the way it has dirtied our souls, our minds, our hearts. We mourn the fact that Christ bore the punishment that we see him bear on Good Friday because of our sin. But our mourning, our mourning gives way to rejoicing for the fact that because of that very cross, Jesus recreates us. He has cleansed our hearts. He has made us new. And every time we come before our holy God, corporately or individually, even now as we call upon him in worship, every time we come before our holy God, we have the opportunity to tell the story again to ourselves and to everyone around us. The story of a sin that ruined us, a sin that ruined our relationship with God, but a sin that God ruined through what he did through his son, Jesus Christ. You have an opportunity this morning to tell that story to yourself, to your God, and to those you love. You have the chance, once again, to repent and return. Repent from your sin and return to the God of salvation. Again, I know this isn't popular or commonplace in our, be frank, materialistic, consumeristic church in 2018. But it's biblical, (laughs) and it's helpful, and it's the movement of the Spirit of God in our midst to call us at times to repentance, to coming before God and laying that which we know is separating us from Him down so that we can turn only to Him. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you in this moment that we are together to be broken over your sin, to grieve over your sin, specific sins, maybe, general sin, and being a human being. And then remember, just as you look inwardly and you get to the depth of your soul, don't stay there, but instead allow it to turn your gaze heavenly to remind you of how much that God's love, God loves you, that he could see even that and love you anyway. And that's why you're worth his love. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of how amazing he is. That's why we don't get stuck in guilt. That's why we don't get stuck on that sin. That sin just reminds us of how big God's love is. May you think about how big God's love is for you this morning. 
you have been forgiven much. So just like the woman in Luke 7, love much in return to this God who has given so much to you. Repent in return and say no to your sin and yes to God. Follow the God who has saved you. Worship the God who has saved you. Be broken and and contrite. Have a broken and contrite heart over your sin so that it may push you towards God, obedience and worship of this God. So during our time of invitation this morning, I encourage you to repent right where you're at. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I haven't done anything wrong in 2018 so far. Everything's going pretty good. I don't need to repent of anything. And maybe you've made time to repent before. And if that's a part of your life, God bless you. I hope that you make this a part of your life to reflect over God's forgiveness of your sins. But maybe, just maybe, you're one of the few people in here that actually sins sometimes. Maybe even regularly, like every day. And if you happen to be one of those people, join me. You know, I'm like you. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And may you take this time to contemplate the depth of that sin. More importantly, the height of the God who has forgiven you. The altar is going to be open this morning. If you want to come and repent right there kneel at the altar. Please feel free to do so. I don't care, and hopefully you don't either, about what other people think or see. If you want to do that right where you're at, do that. If you want to pray with somebody in this building, somebody right beside you, do that. Respond to God. Be broken and contrite no matter what's going on around you or the eyes that you think you feel upon you. Take this time to begin that kind of relationship that David talks about in Psalm 51 with God pray with me. I'm here to do that as well. If there's anyone in this building that has never truly thought about the depth of their sin and God's forgiveness, and you want to experience that forgiveness for the first time through Jesus Christ, I would love to tell you about what that looks like. I can do that at the end of the service while I'm standing during a time of invitation, or you can find me after the service. And if there's anyone here who doesn't have a church home and you would like to make this place your church home, you can come down and talk with me as well about that. But let's stand together. I'm going to pray. You move in whatever way God is telling you to.